Hey, everyone. Before we begin, I just want to say thank you to T-Mobile, a platinum partner on the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator. Together with T-Mobile, the Product Management Center is empowering professionals from historically marginalized communities to land their first product management role. We are committed to an inclusive future, and it is great to see T-Mobile join us as we bring in diverse perspectives into the product management community and as we build a more inclusive future through empowering everyone to drive success developing more inclusive products. Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center, and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman, and I am the founding director of the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington. And every week, we bring you some of the best and brightest to talk about the subjects that matter most to product managers. And today, we are talking about... a. Uh, I don't know if it's a fairly new concept. I don't know how many people fully understand what it is and how to succeed in it, but we're going to be talking about a product-led organization and what you could do at any level to thrive within a product-led organization. And this week, we are joined by a PM at a company that is well-known for being product-led, successful career here. Michael, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. So we're going to start with you just real quick. If you could share a little bit about your journey in product management, and then I'm going to give the caveat that uh, for everybody that uh, although you work at Zoom, everything you're saying is just your own personal opinions and not uh, any private secrets from Zoom. So Michael, go ahead. Tell us a little bit about your journey in product. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Recently, I've, I've been at Zoom for two and a half years, and my responsibilities cover uh, here at Zoom, at least, um, I cover a core area around people and presence, um, so kind of a whole set of core user services. Two, I cover a product line um, around uh, a product called Zoom Huddles. Essentially, it's a, um, it's a virtual co-working space designed to foster inclusive discussions amongst colleagues. And most recently, I've also covered the healthcare vertical in terms of what Zoom does for our healthcare customers across the globe. But that's a little bit about me. Michael, thanks for joining us. And we're going to talk about thriving in a product-led organization in Sumeya. You're here every week. And we had a fascinating discussion with Tatiana just a couple of weeks ago about a product-led organization. Based off of what you've heard and what you've experienced, can you tee up a little bit about why this conversation is valuable for people in the audience? Absolutely. I think this is not a hard argument to make for all of us product-minded folks here in this room for product managers in general. I think what I love about about the concept is that something that's all-encompassing, everyone in the organization believes in it, signs up to, you know, embody it and follow through with it as a mindset. And, you know, in that way, all of us become successful in building products that our customers love, that become a commercial success, hopefully, and are successful by all the metrics that really matter. So I am excited for us to continue this conversation and hear about, you know, other experiences, Michael's experience and how he has done that in his organization. So thanks, Jeff, for uh, putting this together. All right. Thanks for being here every week, uh, sharing your expertise. Somebody once said, instead of Googling something, you should turn your name into a verb, Sumeya it, as like finding all the facts about product management. 
It's all one-stop shop here for Samea. Great to have you here again. And then Red, uh, you are going to be running the stage here in a little bit. So tell us, you're also on the founding advisory board of the Product Management Center, helped build this at the University of Washington from the ground up. Tell us a little bit about why you do it and how people can get involved in today's conversation. Absolutely. Thank you, Jeff. And uh, I think Sumaya GPT has a better ring to it personally. So I like that. I like that. <laughs> so first of all, this is a live podcast. And uh, while the words don't seem to be synonymous, this means that we're recording it live in front of an audience here on LinkedIn every single Tuesday, which gives people an opportunity to ask questions, ask questions about product management that are relevant to the topic. And sometimes we get curveballs where people are coming back from past week's conversations and hoping that we can cover those as well. So with that in mind, if you have a question, please DM me, reach out, throw a comment in the chat or in the uh, page here. And uh, just know in about 15, 20 minutes, we're going to open up the opportunity for you to get some time with the experts on stage, Sumia GPT and Michael from Zoom, a fantastic opportunity. And Jeff, you asked me the question of why I do this. It's very simple. I've been working with product managers for over a decade. And if there's one bet I could ever make for a role that I believe truly, truly believe there are not enough open doors for, it's product management. It's a role that is, is an incredibly rewarding opportunity. And I hope if you're listening to this, and you feel like there's no door, well, congratulations, you found your official concierge, Mr. Jeffrey Schulman, the founder of the University of Washington's very first and the country's very first center focused primarily on product managers and everything on the inclusivity of that role. So Jeff, that is why I'm passionate and I'm going to pass it back to you. All right. Love the enthusiasm. So if Sumeya is Sumeya GPT, we're going to have to get Michael a nickname. I don't know if it's going to be Michael Bard at the end of this, you know, the Google Bard. Yeah, I don't know. That fell flat. Anyway, Michael, we're going to tap into your expertise in your view. And I understand there's different, potentially different views on what it means, but what is a product-led organization? Yeah, I mean, definitely many variants of, of what that means. But to me personally, I think it comes to a few things. Like one is definitely the culture of being able to think in that mindset, like Samia mentioned earlier. Two is really internalizing the customer that you're solving problems for. And then three is how do you really, you know, be effective at, at measuring the outcomes on whether or not you're making the right impact. And I think all of those three things are, are really kind of the core towards one, infusing the, the right attributes into an organization in terms of the people and in, in how they need to be thinking about the customer and being product led and really about how do you then actually, you know, empower those individuals to build the right things to actually drive the business forward. All right. So now we're going to talk about thriving in a product-led organization. But first, I just want to put Sumeya on the spot. And was there any key takeaways from our conversation with Tatiana a few weeks ago that you want to kind of reemphasize or bring into the foreground here as people are wondering whether they want to get work at a product-led organization, wondering how they can contribute to one, anything that stuck with you that you want to carry forward to today? I think what what I went away with is in product-led organizations, the thing that everyone gets away with there is not having to break down the discussion into parts about what is important for the customer versus what is important to us. And there is more of that complexity built into the single phrase of product-led. 
So in a lot of the, you know, conversations we have, we talk about the trade-offs sometimes between having to do the right thing for the customer versus having to do the right thing for the business. And a lot of times there is a time element to that. What's the right thing, you know, in the next three weeks versus the next six months versus the next two years might look a little different. And so to me, the difference is not in actually what you end up doing. Fundamentally, a healthy product team is going to do the right thing regardless of the concept they're following. But what makes it easier is in the conversations you have, if you are in a product-led organization, all you need to say is we're doing the right thing for the product. And everyone understands that under that, there is built-in care for the customer and care for the company. But I might be oversimplifying it, but that was really the take-home messaging for me. Michael, any agreement or disagreement with anything that Sumeya said based off of how you view product-led organizations? Yeah, I mean, I'm generally agree, right? Like I, I, which is why it's kind of funny. It's 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 an art form than than a science, right? Like there's always different variants of it, really depending on the on the product that you end up building, the customers that you're facing, and then as well as you know where that organization is in terms of its product development journey. But yeah, generally agree with everything that Sumia said. All right, so now I have another question for you, Michael. So one of our homework assignments from Talk on Product Led a few weeks ago was to read Todd Olson's uh, The Product-Led Organization. One of the things Todd Olson's book, at least what I took away from it, was that a product-led organization tries to solve all the problems with products. So it's like a real emphasis on building instead of outsourcing some things to the sales team, outsourcing some things to the customer support team. Like Ultimately, the goal is to keep building and solving problems through product instead of other means. Is that a a fair takeaway in your assessment as well? And do you see any challenges or problems with that mindset? Yeah, like, I mean, I'll reference my own personal experience, right? I do think the the methodology, it works for certain types of businesses and certain types of products. And it obviously is not the case for for everything. Um, So, you know, like all things, definitely modulation is, is critical. But I do think there's a lot of challenges that, especially in like enterprise tool tooling, as an example, where historically have been very focused on a sales-led motion. And because of that, you end up with fairly complicated products um, that over-indexes actually sometimes on the workflows and therefore you end up with a ton of features and controls and, and whatnot, makes it very challenging for, for users to intuitively leverage, as well as the fact that most of which comes with, you know, heavy amount of training <laughs> just because of the learning curve is high, right? And that's not wrong, but, you know, it it's definitely makes it harder on, on the users themselves and even organizations themselves because they have to go through that type of process to actually onboard the users to have them become effective. And then that's kind of like how they get get to the the level of of steady state so that they could be efficient at at using something like that. On the other end of the spectrum are, you know, products that I would say are more consumer or even prosumer facing. And those ones are the ones that tend to be more effective at building net new capabilities or even having dedicated user experiences that actually goes through the learning journey. And I think most of us have used plenty of consumer apps that have all these 
you know, mechanisms around coach marks and whatnot that helps a user understand the core concepts and then the basics of how to use something. And then the smarter ones are more, you know, at the right place at the right time, engaging you in terms of like how you should use uh, based on what they design. And of course, you know, users still <laughs> veer off like how things are designed or initially designed in terms of how they use the product and use it in their own own unique way that they believe is the most effective. But I think I do think the latter aspect of these kind of consumer prosumer type facing products are more primed towards, you know, building net new capabilities to help these users learn more about the the product and how to use it more effectively than say like you know more sales led oriented products on the enterprise end of the spectrum. So may any reaction to what Michael is saying there? I think Michael put it in a similar way I would have put it and he made me think about you know the the arc of products in both the consumer and and uh, enterprise side over the years. So I've been doing this for almost for more than 20 years at this point and I've seen how we have evolved from, you know, a purely just, you know, the sales guy going in with the CD to talk to you about the software they have to now a lot of self-serve is available even on the enterprise side. And so when I think about these uh, principles or rules that some PMs like to create or to follow, I think of them as a reaction to an old paradigm. But I don't know that that's true anymore. What I mean by that exactly is in the past we had to remind people to think of creating self-service and to create uh, freemiums, to create ways for people to free trial products. But now all of that has become part of, you know, the normal one-on-one of building any software product. It's rare that you see these days anything new that people haven't, you know, already thought about and that's already in the handbook. So, what I would say is, um, you know, instead of going into this absolutist kind of rule of saying, oh, you need to build products for everything, if you understand your customer and want to optimize your business, you will understand what is the right, you know, mix between hand-holding people or, you know, let's say a traditional sales motion versus building a self-service kind of a self-directed onboarding. But having said all that, there are always businesses coming up that prove some of these rules wrong. For example, the simple human email. We were going all the way into anyone can sign up for, for an email by themselves. And then simple human came, charged people for the email and provided, uh, let's say, a better interface and a human-based onboarding, which, you know, if you follow this rule, maybe wouldn't have been the thing you would have done. So I think there is nuance here, and so I agree with my, what Michael said. Can I just add add a little bit more to that? Like, you know, I there's aspects of understanding your end users and how they use your product is important. But for building, you know, truly a successful and monetizable product, like understanding your buyers are also important. So, you know, of course, consumer facing products, your your buyers are your users, but, you know, for business products, naturally, somebody else is actually making the purchasing decision. And you, I think being a PM, you have to recognize that and understand what the motivation behind those individuals are. 
And so like, you know, selling to, you know, a Fortune 500 company is drastically different from selling a product to a small medium business or even, you know, like your mid markets, right? So, you know, the the way in how smaller organizations end up purchasing products ends up being, you know, like, you know, decision maker might get democratized a, a lot more than a standard enterprise um, where CIO makes a purchasing decision and then everyone else in the organization essentially is directed to go use a certain product for specific purposes versus for like small, medium businesses. There might be business unit, you know, uh, managers or whatnot making these purchasing decisions just for their own team and, and whatnot. So, you know, the self-serving aspect works very well for organizations that have more flexibility in how they make these decisions versus, you know, traditional en- enterprises kind of fall into this more old school model of like somebody really high up making the purchasing decision and then everybody else have to follow and, and use what it is. So the impact uh, or the implications towards self-serve models, uh, freemium models become different. We can argue the fact that the world is changing and has changed a lot, um, you know, compared to like, you know, a decade ago and, and how <laughs> tools are, are, are bought in, in businesses or even for, you know, consumers. But where we are now today, we see more democratization with software tools than ever before. Thus, you see all these kind of like, you know, freemium based products that are even, you know, driving some level of uh, adoption and virality within the largest of uh, organizations today. So I think like recognizing that kind of underlying change in, in the market behavior and how you design the product and, and fitting those needs of the buyers as well as the users, even if they're the same person, is, is very critical. All right. Now, Red, I want to put you on the spot. So hopefully you're paying attention here. That we had a couple examples of the the sales and product handoff and collaboration. Anything to add to how you found that you could add the most value to your product teams, and how what you would like of your product teams that could add the most value to you, so that you're working in the same direction instead of opposite directions. Oh, look, a butterfly. Oh, what were we talking about again, Jeff? I'm sorry. Um, bad joke. I try. So this is actually really timely. Uh, this week, uh, someone on our product team, and this is a you know an organization, a company of over 200 individuals. So it's very common for people not to know each other. But one of one of the PMs actually reached out to me and said, "Hey, would you like to go to the water cooler and just chat?" And I found this to be an incredible achievement for somebody who's sitting in the sales org, right? Someone who's in the customer facing org to have to actively be solicited from someone on the product side to just say, let's chat, let's just talk, get to know each other. I think that's that's a really strong example of what a great culture looks like, where you might be sales-led, you might be product-led, but at the end of the day, we're all working together to create something great for the customer. And I just have to say that that to me is uh, an incredible thing I, I, I want people to think about and push for. So if you're like, oh, I don't meet with people at engineering, you know, it's, it's weird. Why would I take them out to lunch? You don't understand half the time you're selling to people who are them on the phone. Like if you're in sales and you're expected to sell product to someone in product, why wouldn't you hang out with your product people? So that's where I would say is, is the place to begin is creating that relationship. The other place that I found to be incredibly successful is getting comfortable with hackathons and geeking out. So, you know, Salespeople love to blame product, sorry, product people, (laughs) for us not hitting our number. 
oh, you know, product said they were going to get it out in a week and it's been three months. Well, no, product never said that. They said that they were shooting for it, but things come up, things happen. You oversold. But when it comes to these hackathons and these events where people and companies can build products together, that is an incredible outlet for someone who's in sales, who has great ideas for what the product could be. Because now you can actually sit down with product and say, hey, I've been hearing a lot of this from prospects and buyers. Do you want to just see if we can throw it together? It'll not only create empathy for the salesperson to understand how difficult it truly is to whip things together, but it'll also show them how valuable it is when they open their mouths and share what they hear from the buyer, from the prospects. So hopefully, oh, I see Michael. I I think it's so interesting that you say that, right? Because like at the end of the day, product is looking at the metrics on whether it moves the needle or not. Whether the implementation is, you know, product-led or, or, or the source of the information is product-led or sales-led, it doesn't matter. To that extent, you're looking for the signal to determine, hey, is this the right thing we should be doing? And I think that's where it comes from is, you know, do you have enough information from your customer set, whether it's through your product telemetry to guide your decision-making or um, is information coming from the sales force? And I think the reality is, yes, definitely have to work as a team because, you know, the reality is there are definitely products that are 100% product-led and they'll be successful. Certain products are 100% sales-led and they could be successful. But the majority of the products is actually both. Of course, depending on, again, the life cycle and the maturity of what that product is. But um, it really resonates in what you said to how my day-to-day job is like. Well, we, you know, sales aims to please here, Michael. That's that's what we do. And I'm not going to ask you to add anything to the roadmap. I promise. Just maybe a little nudge once in a while. All right, Jeff, back to you. <laughs> All right. Thanks, uh, Red. And thank you, Michael, for chiming in there. We're going to get to audience questions in a minute. But first, I just want round robin. All three of you can participate if you want, but we're doing quick hits, like just one bite-sized takeaway for a product manager in a product-led organization one tip for them that could help them thrive. You could pick the target audience. So are they brand new? Are they a manager of product managers? Wherever you want, but give us the target audience and what one quick hit of what they could do to thrive in a product-led organization. The audience would be for just all product managers or individuals that are influencing product to make decisions. I think this is a well-walked topic, but avoiding the the build trap. I think this is a terminology that was shared by Melissa Perry, I believe. And it's really about like understanding the problem, truly what is the root cause of it in order for you to build the right thing versus building a whole set of things that alleviate the symptoms, which essentially is the build trap. You end up building a bunch of things, solve for symptoms that don't actually solve for the problem. Um, avoiding that is critical. I'll uh, add mine, and it's targeted mainly to uh, product leaders and other executives who are thinking about using a product-led approach and infusing that as part of their culture. Um, And I would say, you know, there are a couple of elements I would want to pay attention to. What is not working within your product culture right now. So identify that first. Would a product-led mindset fix that? That's one. And two, if you decide to go for it and if a product-led culture would actually help fix the issues, fundamental issues you have, make sure that every level and every part of the organization 
gets the same memo. And so you have everyone thinking and talking in the same way because it is going to take some time for it to stick and for everyone to start using the same shorthands for what actually matters in the conversations. Quick hits, Red. That's not quick. Get in there. And no, I was invited to the party. You know, you, you asked a sales person to join a product party. It's an honor. So, uh, Jeff, I'm I'm taking it back a little bit here. I'm not even going to lie. So not a quick hit whatsoever. Sorry. You're just going to have humor and laughs for me right now. This is what happens, by the way, with salespeople and product people. We just didn't know we were invited to the club. Yeah, I understand. You were sitting out there waiting for somebody to ask you to dance, and you were so surprised that it happened that uh, you tripped over your own shoelaces here. Uh, <laughs> oh. oh, no, no, no. I was dancing in the corner on my own. And they're like, who's this weird dude dancing to himself? That's more what it was like. I've seen, I've seen pictures of uh, cool red. So there's no dancing in the corner for you. I want to add something about, you know, salespeople specifically. I think one of the biggest mistakes that some product leaders make is to think that they need to protect their product teams from sales folks. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because the less you communicate, the less you create that collaborative culture between the two teams, you know, where they're thinking as just a single product team, the more you, yeah, you have to protect your team (laughs) because they don't get to see the action. They don't get to see the challenges. They don't see you, see your team coming up with the conclusions that matter. You know, they get these polished communications from the product team and those polished communications don't necessarily have all the ones that's needed. So I think Decide what level of involvement you want, uh, how often you want the team to collaborate, the two teams to collaborate, but come at it from a, a place of sales as part of the product building ethos, mindset, feedback loop, and make them part of that. All right, I'm going to put Michael on the spot. Do you have another quick hit for us to save Red for, so we could have our full round of quick hits before we get to the audience <laughs> questions? Maybe this is like an related to what Samia said. Um, the kind of nice, like you know, I don't know if this is a quick hit actually. <laughs> Maybe a slow slow motion hit. Recognize the product you're building and who it is for. Right for again, like for the consumer end of the spectrum. Yes, it's going to be very product metrics driven to like you know very traditional product led type uh, methodologies. But when you work with sales um, on a more or product that have a sales motion, the benefit is you actually have direct access to your customers. So part of it is just picking up the phone and like, you know, being on a call with your customer and be empathetic on, on the types of challenges that they're dealing with. And sometimes the product requirements coming through isn't exactly like measurable in terms of like, you know, is it going to drive my usage up? Is it going to drive this and that? And This is my own personal learning, right? Like, you know, going through the past three years um, with the pandemic and working on a communication tool, um, both at Microsoft and and now at Zoom, the reality is these types of technologies are immensely important during those times, like just triaging patients remotely, as an example. It's very hard to put an exact metric value on it because it's not, it's just not something that you could easily measure, measure. So being empathetic is like kind of that intangible that you need to internalize and master as a product person working with all the other disciplines, uh, inclusive of, of your customer to actually deliver value that 
they would care about. And you can argue <laughs> it can help your retention metric as a mechanism because of what you've done for them during trying times. So, you know, don't forget that. Like at the end of the day, we're, we're building things to solve problems and know who you're solving the problem for and what value you're generating for them. You know, Jeff, this actually, I had to jump in because it's a quick hit tip here. Got to give me saving grace, bro. Got to give me saving grace. I think everyone works for the product manager at an organization if you're customer facing. Because if you require empathy, we've been talking about quantitative quite a bit, but the qualitative elements don't typically come through NPS, surveys, CSAT. Those are biased, low volume converters. If you want to know what you should be doing for your customers, especially as we think about PLG uh, Enterprise, you have to look at your customer success team, your support team, your sales team, your business development reps, the BDRs, the marketers. There is a lot of qualitative data captured right in there that can help you be empathetic as a product manager. So that's my quick frontline tip. Back to you, Jeff. All right, we're getting quick hits, heavy hits, and all in between. Red, it's now time to have, uh, oh man, I couldn't get hit in there somewhere, but uh, try, time to get hits from our guests here, if they have anything they want to add to the conversation or any questions for Michael or Sumeya. So Red, do your thing. Well, today I'm going to do jumping jacks and count backwards from 20 in my head as we hope for Chantel, Alexander, Jericho, Dan. Dan, buddy, you know, jump off that log and jump on stage. Jeremy, looking fancy in that jacket over there. I think you need to show off not just the jacket, but your incredible question asking skills. Already, it's been, I don't know, two minutes. It's been forever. Hopefully, all those folks in the audience listening caught just a few of you. There's many more. This is your opportunity to raise your hand, shine, ask a question. You've got not only a product you use every single day, but you have people that are out there fighting to create a better world for you. And if you're part of that fight, please, this is your opportunity to ask questions. So if you're shy and you're not going to raise your hand, there's a little raise hand button. You don't want to do that. Then go ahead and DM me. That's a direct message me here on LinkedIn. Or you can put it in as a comment right within the board. Jeff, I can't refresh the page just yet, but uh, I see Sumeya coming off mute. I do have a question for Michael while we're waiting for other questions. Michael, having worked in organizations of different kinds that have different cultures, what is the main difference between ones that say they are product-led and others? I think most organizations, at least different products, always always think they're, they're product-led. I think they're... The reality comes in, you know, truly, are they, are they, you know, summarizing both product metrics with qualitative information? And, you know, sometimes it's, it's harder to do one or the other, but really making data-driven decisions, I think, is the, the key to understanding whether or not an organization is truly product-led under those circumstances. I want to double click on that a little bit uh, and maybe take this conversation deeper. So the idea here is is that most successful product organizations would use metrics to help them define product direction, mm-hmm. etc. A bit in what you're describing when uh, when you're talking about product-led organizations, you're saying there is even more emphasis on qualitative data. It, I think it's a mixture of both, right? Like the qualitative is, of course, important because that gives you, you know, a good understanding of like customer sentiment on, you know, whether they love your product or not and whether or not you're really solving their, their problems. When you look at product metrics, there's many different types of metrics, right? And what I'm saying is really understanding the user behavior type metrics is important. 
because you can argue like, oh yeah, you know, sales numbers looking great. <laughs> you know, we're doing the right thing, and that might be completely incorrect, right? Because it's it's naturally a lagging indicator on that front, as well as it doesn't really tell you a whole lot about you know whether or not people are are using your product or using it well or using it deeply and that they're coming back, you might just have a great sales team that's like, <laughs> you know, doing all the heavy lifting sale selling product into organizations. So I think like, you know, being very, you know, specific around what you're measuring to then use that data set to make decisions around what you build. That's what product led means to me. Now, so maybe before you dig in, and Michael, that was a great answer. We we had a whole episode about lagging indicators and leading indicators, which uh, is an argument in itself. Samir is very excited about that as a topic. But we have Dan on stage. Dan, 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 I'm so excited to have you here. You look incredible, outdoorsy and all. I am just already away from my desk here in this conference room and transported to the outdoors for your incredible question. So no pressure. You're off mute. <laughs> what do you have to say? Thanks, Red. Hi, everybody. Maybe a silly question. When would you determine that a data-led or a data-driven outcome might be overruled by an emotional mm -hmm. one? Um, I can give an example. So lots of data in a project that I'm working on leads us to believe that we should be going down a particular route. But all of us on the team um, and everybody that we speak to and all the user groups all feed back an emotional level about this particular product that we're trying to release. And it's almost unquantifiable. It's just, it's a really strange thing. And I wondered if anybody had ever come across that and whether or not you could answer, is there a time where you just go, do you know what? We haven't actually got the thing nailed down, but there's an emotional response. And we know it's something that's maybe slightly intangible, but we think it's going to bring benefit that's a tough one. Uh, you know, Michael, just given the empathy, please chime in. Yeah, and just my own personal opinion, right? Like, I think those are, that. that's what I call the magic. You know, I just kind of like giant bucket, up, like giant bucket of, of special things that your product does well, and it essentially creates a moment. I think having those traits is actually a great thing you know, being able to identify it and then do something about it. And it might not make all the sense on, on paper because of the metrics that you have today. And that could be two things, like maybe the current metrics aren't the right metrics <laughs> that you have designed to, to measure the success of that. But I think that's where the, the intangible aspect comes from. And like most products, like there's aspects of measuring customer satisfaction as a, as a means to determine whether or not it makes sense. And so the art piece of, of all of the product management decision is like, yeah, your, your gut feel, you know, and the fact that everyone's giving you some level of emotional response on whether it's good or bad, like it, it is a signal, take that into consideration 110%. Now that's Michael's response. What about you, Sumaya? We always love controversy or as most product managers love to do, agreement with that in mind what about you <laughs> i i do have a lot of questions before i would feel comfortable giving a more precise response yeah so can i ask a couple of clarifying questions dan go for it yeah no of course you can yeah is this an existing product that has been around for some time no we're replacing a legacy system well multiple systems that are unsupported and we've got the benefit of you know, a bit of lead time to try and develop something. 
the thing that people feel so emotional about is something that they've used in the past and they liked in the past? It's it's a concept that is at complete odds with the organization strategy mm-hmm. and it won't be received well. <laughs> so, and the organization strategy is like the organization that's building the software or that's buying it? Yeah, so I, I predominantly work with... Um, government organizations at the moment and this is a, another example of where we're being pushed in a particular direction but the uh, you know the emotional response that we're getting back is hard to kind of quantify i think most people are telling me and i i think much the same thing you know what what we're trying to do here is not necessarily going to solve the problems but because of the way that things are set up and from a funding model it's very challenging to to turn the ship once it's already kind of going in a particular direction it's it's an odd situation that we just happen to be in at the moment well the the reason i ask about this is because there are two typical pieces of advice i think we in the product management world give one is don't necessarily believe everything your customer tells you As in, you know, they might talk to you about a problem that they are facing and that can, they might say that that's the most important one, but in reality, they will not be willing to spend money on that. And there are other ones that they would. And so as a business, which one is the problem you're going to work on? And then the second one is, you know, this concept of product management is an art is not necessarily a science. So don't, Always just believe the data, you know, the, the metrics, take some of that, you know, narrative into consideration. Um, and so I have the, both of these things, you know, exceptions in the back of my mind uh, as I'm hearing your answer. And I still don't have enough information to feel strongly about one or the other direction to go with. And so Michael's answer about the magic... <laughs> Is it the all-encompassing magic of, you know, go with that, unless you have more details you want to share? <laughs> I can't. That's the, the kind of the problem we've got because we signed these NDAs. Well, yeah. Dan, you know. It's okay. Thank you ever so much. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for the question, Dan. Uh, You know, the reality is like there's a lot of complications in most projects, whether it's, you know, like I, I think the... You clearly, it, it sounds like it's a, there's a funding aspect that is from from a government uh, type entity, and whether or not they've already predetermined the the project requirements for you in, in terms of what you should build, but you're hearing something completely different in terms of the user set and what they want and what what's needed, and it's a fine balance, right? I, I don't think again, there's no black and white answers. Everyone is dealt like you know uh, a special circumstance in terms of what they have to navigate. I think the parting words, if I would, is you know bubble up that type of feedback like from your user set to to your project decision makers. The reality is maybe they are also disconnected and not seeing you know these types of signals and and the rationale for why you should take the project in a different direction. But again, right, like you know. It's it's hard <laughs> to to kind of steer a ship like that because unlike building a product where you can look at signals and say, hey, well, we didn't find the right product market fit, therefore we're going to pivot. Like you know, governmental projects typically uh, is like predeterministic, and the the outcomes in terms of whether they measure your success or not is did you deliver on those requirements or not. So I think it's a uh, different ball game <laughs> to some extent. Hey, Michael, thank you so much, Dan. 
Thank you so much for the opportunity to help out today. Thank you very much. Of course. Uh, in Michael's analogy of uh, not being able to steer the ship, I just picture this giant government barge and there's this really happy and unhappy customers, like four humans just sitting in front of it as it's coming to them head on. I don't know. It's just a really sad image. Uh, there's nothing they can do. And, and sometimes it feels like that in organizations. If that's how you ever felt as a product manager, tune into our episodes because that level of empathy is required to be in this role. And it's one we can help you learn how tactics for better steering. So let's take on the monoliths. monoliths. And if you don't know what a monolith is, eh, don't ask your engineers. Google it. So with that in mind, we got another question on stage. And then I got a question that's been DM'd to us. MH, the stage is yours. How can we help? Hi, Brad. So one of the things I've been that's been kind of noodling in the back of my head while y'all were talking in our own product-led growth journey at my company is you see over the last two years more and more kind of those hallmark product-led growth companies restricting their entry-level tiers more and more. Like people are going to free trials from free accounts, removing the features from their free accounts. It feels like they're getting more and more restricted and it feels like it's kind of correlated as people are um, doing cost-cutting measures. Um, but I wasn't sure if anyone had any insights on how that's impacting conversions or if those companies just aren't that product-led growth anymore, if that's kind of like their old go-to-market motion. Um, so, up here. Do you have an example company? Uh, so one that would not I mean, implicate Slack, you? Slack, Slack has reduced their free tiers, cut mm-hmm. back their free tiers, I think is a pretty obvious one. I mean, obviously it was post-acquisition by Salesforce, but. Perfect. So we have a couple examples. Michael jumped off and you know what? Uh, this is not about Zoom. We're not nope. saying anything about Zoom. <laughs> not at all. It's <laughs> my personal opinion. Okay. I do agree with you, MH. Like, I, I think it comes down to the, I don't think they're less product led by any means. I think it's really a business model type decision, right? The reality is, you know, the cost cutting measures, like you mentioned, like, there's a lot of operating expenses coming out of products by giving things away for free. That's just the reality of it, you know, to compute costs, storage costs, hosting, like all of that, right? And so if you think about the over, you know, overall macroeconomics around this is that top lines of companies are flattening. And so under those circumstances, you know, if you keep giving away things for free, <laughs> your margins are going to continually get squeezed. So, you know, in order for for you to, you know, realistically think about if your yield of conversion is to, is you know low as an example and you're not going to gain any more giving the tapering of of the top line the only way for you to you know maintain your burn is to reduce cost and therefore you have to do something about your existing operating expenses um and i i do think there's aspects of like also like a company depending on what cycle they're in when they're in a growth cycle the importance is acquiring users and then figuring out monetization later. But when you're more established, these types of core financial metrics become more important. And therefore your strategy might be different um, by looking at your operating leverage. So, you know, I, I think it just happens to be where we are in the state of market versus, you know, truly um, how the product is being uh, built differently, or you know, there might be some of that. We, we will never know. <laughs> they did get acquired <laughs> by a different company, right? Um, so leadership have changed and all of that. 
But I, I do think like if from an outside in perspective, I would think about from a business standpoint for why they're doing certain things. And usually when you change market models is, is to look at either your, <laughs> your conversion or, or your expenses. Yeah. Okay. So, MH, uh, that's one perspective. I'd love to spice it up here. And Sumea, anything you'd like to add to that? In the case of Slack, I'm also thinking about their maturity and their saturation in the market. And I wonder if one of uh, the considerations the, or the things they looked at was whether the people who were using uh, their free tier were from fully saturated markets um, or segments that they were not looking for any further growth in. I'm just thinking about segmentation overall and what their data looked like before they made those decisions. But I don't have any insights actually to what that data was. So there's a perspective here, uh, you know, one of which is look at the times, look at the market, look at the bets SaaS has made and the markets have made and where we've ended up and the pivots. And the other is also segmentation. It's just this, uh, you just happen to be in a segment that they want to deprioritize. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when you put it that way, it doesn't feel very nice, but uh we can't all be the best segment or cohort. But MH, does this provide you with the perspective you were hoping for? Is there anything left unturned? No, I mean, I really wish they knew the inside scoop. But I mean, other than that, I totally appreciate the perspective and it's very valuable. Well, we appreciate you coming on stage and uh, braving us. It could get controversial at times, but when I say that, it's like a one in a hundred episode chance. They're super nice, these PMs. I just don't know why they all get along so much. Thank you, MH, and uh, good luck with your day. Well, we have another question that's been sent to us directly, anonymous. So we'll call this person anonymous. The question is how to analyze risk assessment in a product-led organization. Are there any frameworks that people follow for analyzing risk assessment? Now, Sumeya, I'm, I hear the word framework, and you are always going to be the first person to speak on stage. <laughs> so I have to come right out and say I have never worked for a company that came out and said they're product-led. I've always worked for companies that said they're customer obsessed and customer focused and want to build the best products. Uh, so I, you know, my experience with risk frameworks is limited to that context. This is good though. This I, I like this game. Okay, Sumaya, here's what's yeah. going to happen. You're yeah. going to describe a framework you think could apply to product led, and then Michael's going to either destroy that answer and go, uh-uh, that does not apply. You, this is why people are here today. They might not be in product-led like you, and they're going to use this framework called Mr. Bojangles, and it's the wrong framework, and it's going to blow up the PLG. So, um, <laughs> yeah, Mr. Well, Bojangles, that's a I, I, I love this. So I don't know if it's a framework per se, but uh, one of my favorite things to do as a team is for us to keep a log of the risks that we think of and see coming up as we are starting working on a product and through the life of, a, of the product. So we would have a, a risk log and we would revisit it periodically and talk about has any of these risks become more uh, realistic or are they still far-fetched and just, you know, potential that the risk propensity, that they're 
likelihood of happening is still slim. Um, and so there is, I think a, it's just a risk log that includes three pieces of information, a description of the risk, the likelihood of it happening, uh, and it's basically three categories, low, high, and medium. And then the third piece of information is how would we address the risk if it was to become an issue, because essentially one of the biggest things for us as product people that we want to make sure the team doesn't have to to deal with uh, are high impediments or uh, issues that can impede progress. And sometimes to see far ahead, we just need to understand the risks. Okay. Uh, One last thing. This is something that uh, I think complex products should do. I'm not a huge fan of doing it in smaller products. Okay. This is really helpful. So enough of your riffraff. And if anyone doesn't get the joke I just made, RAF risk assessment framework. Eh, eh, come on. Come on. Jeff says, are you ready every week and gets a freaking laugh? This is, this is a no-go. All right, Michael, the stage is yours. Uh, what kind of RAF do you've got for a PLG to take on Sumeya's? Uh, this is only for complex systems. Yeah, I think um, I don't really have a framework, to be honest. I, I feel like a lot of it is almost like a, a, a day-to-day way of evaluating as a product person whether or not we should do something. But I, I feel like it comes down to like three three things. One is like the, the value proposition. Like, you know, does it create value for your customers, which essentially tells you whether or not they would want it, they would buy it, they would use it. Two is the cost of, of doing that work. Like, you know, what are you foregoing, you know, by doing this work versus other work? And then it comes down to really the feasibility of actually going ahead with this by managing the, the kind of like opportunity cost, of, if you will, of, of, of whatnot. But I, I think we, we probably like unconsciously do this in our brains, like with everything we're doing day in, day out. But it's, it's really kind of how do you you know, for the, for whether it's feature or products at, at whole um, that go through this exercise, like how do you justify that? And arguably, I think for, for certain companies, right? Like the, the risk reward sometimes is, is outside, which is why certain companies make huge bets and innovate on net new things that no one believes in today. And they need to be convinced and, and actually, you know, figure out a, a business for it. And then there are some companies that, just forego it because it's not worth what they're doing, which is why I think you see very different patterns of different types of organizations that are out there. Smaller organizations are usually in this growth cycle betting on new things versus large companies, established companies that are, you know, humongously kind of like revenue generating don't tend to do as much of those things just because that meta (laughs) cough. And, you know, they, they, they do some pretty risky stuff, right? You can argue with like their entire AR VR business is, is very innovative and, and that could really change the paradigms in the future. But, you know, the, the, you know, not all see it that way. Like every other great product, there's always somebody saying that, nope, <laughs> it's not It's not good to do it. It's not worth it. Some turns out to be true, um, but some turns out to be like the next platform that gets created. Um, so, yeah. Well, I was sad to hear that you both agreed in a non-framework, <laughs> but uh, I think this uh, idea of being flexible and, and not being... Uh, 
status of some kind of AI tool. Like you are a human. You you provide an extra layer of what should we do in this take big bets. I, I don't think AI can make uh, the qualitative and empathetic bets that you do on the daily basis. So with that in mind, I have to report back to my people in sales that product is yet for another day in done good hands with you two. And if, uh, if I can ask for anything, it's not roadmap. It's opportunities to continue to influence roadmap without asking for anything in return. So with that in mind, Jeff, questions are done, man. This is, uh, you know, no Thank controversy today. No crying. But, uh, no tears, yeah. uh, laughing tears. Yeah. Let's wrap this up with concluding thoughts. Sumay, anything you want to leave the audience with? I think we talked now a couple of weeks about this product-led concept uh, and fundamentally the things we care about as PMs don't change. You know, what matters to our customers, the success of the business are all key. And so hopefully all our discussions have not confused people, but just uh, created more of that understanding around the nuance of what that means day to day. Thank you. Michael? Anything you want to leave the audience with? I would say, you know, being product-led, focus on your customers and the signals that you get, both quantitative and qualitative, um, to then leverage it to make your product decisions and delivering the next set of value that they would buy and, and use from you. I think keeping yourself grounded and asking those questions day in, day out, kind of making sure that that you're actually solving the right problems is is probably fun. All right. Thank you, Michael, for being here. Thank you, Samaya and Red. Appreciate the energy you bring every week. And thank you all for listening. So my concluding thought is alignment. I think it's just really important that product-led organizations have alignment among all of their different roles and all the different people working, aligning towards creating so much value for your customers that they are desperate to keep you in business. I don't know if desperate is the right word, but you, you want to delight customers, create so much value that uh, they want to be your customers and, and align towards what you want them to do. And my other thing is I hope that all of you will continue to take a broader view of who your customer is. Uh, very often you will get uh, a persona and fall in love with that persona and not realize that that user segment could, uh, we could broaden that a little bit to think through uh, some historically marginalized communities who could fit that uh, target segment but may not be met, have their needs met by what you create when you bring your own biases to it. So hopefully you'll think for a broader set of users, a broader set of customers as you become product-led. And hopefully you'll join us next week and every week here on the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast recorded on Tuesdays at noon on LinkedIn. Yeah, looking forward to seeing everybody next week. Take care, everyone.